Welcome, listeners. This is Jonathan Yamasaki, co-host of Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And this is Richard Ceballos, your kooky and charismatic co-host, all the way from the Silicon Valley slash San Francisco area. We are a podcast where we bring you local entrepreneurs and leaders from around the world to share their story about adversity, triumph, and their business. The name of this podcast speaks for itself. We empower you with digestible, inspiring, and valuable content on starting your own business. Also, we dissect stories of success and reveal some of the raw truths and hardships of creating and maintaining your business. Today's entrepreneur is not like anyone we've brought before. While working on HBO, Art Bell pitched the idea of an all-comedy network that became Comedy Central, started off as the Comedy Channel a channel that would become the center of the comedy universe. Brash, hilarious, and unafraid. He held senior positions in programming and marketing during the channel's first eight years. He also has an exciting book that we recently checked out, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, thank you for coming on to our show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Art, we would like to hear from you about the origins of Comedy Central, discuss defining and painful moments in launching the first cable channel dedicated to pure comedy, and receive advice on what it takes to bring your visions to life and while growing as a leader in person. Um, yeah, well, it started, uh, interestingly enough, when I was a kid, because I loved comedy. I watched comedy on television from the time I was eight years old. That was, you know, mostly on variety shows. I couldn't watch Johnny Carson. It was on too late. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but wherever I could see comics, that's where I watched them. There was a show called The Ed Sullivan Show, which was on every Sunday night. That's where I first saw Richard Pryor in his first appearance on television. It was unbelievable how funny he was. He was like 20 years old. And I realized that comedians and comedy in general had the ability to make zillions of people laugh all at the same time. And I thought that was very powerful. And I wanted to know more about comedy. So I spent my high school years, you know, my school years and my high school years doing a little bit of a, of comedy, sketch comedy, mostly writing a lot of comedy, uh, wrote a satirical magazine. And then when I got to college, I ran into other people who were interested in comedy and we did some comedy together. But I never really wanted to be a comedian, and I never really wanted to be in the comedy business. As a matter of fact, I studied economics in college and was an economics major. And my first job out of college, I was an economist for three years in Washington, D.C., working uh, at a consulting firm on very, very difficult problems for the Department of Energy and the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And that was, uh, those were my smart days. I was, I was very smart in those days. <laughs> it's been fading ever since. But I got to work with very smart people too. And also it gave me a good background in business and economics generally, how the world works. I'll just take the time now to point out that whatever job you have on, on the road to creating a business is going to help you. It's going to help you do a better job of creating your business and being better at your business. And I'm talking about any job, lifeguarding, lawn mowing, you know, the working in the accounting department. I mean, anything you do, it's really adding to that information reservoir that you're going to need when you're starting your own business. Because when you're starting a business, you have to know everything about everything. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. You have to really cover a lot of ground. So there I was coming out of a, a, a job in economics. I went back to business school. And while I was at business school, I was trying to decide what to do. 
And there was this thing called The Follies, The Wharton Follies. And it was a musical comedy review put on by the Wharton graduate students. And I was in it. And then the second year, I wrote the whole thing. And it reminded me how much I loved comedy. I just loved writing it. I loved watching it. I had to dance a little and sing a little. That was <laughs> painful, probably as much for the audience as it was for me. But um, <laughs> so there I am coming out of business school. And most of my friends are going to Wall Street or investment banks. And I said, you know what? I want to work in the, in the television business. And what I really want to do is work at a comedy network. This is the early 80s. There was no comedy network. I mean, there was an all sports network that, you know, we had all news. We had lots of different kind of networks showing up, you know, handful of networks, but different. And I was just totally baffled that there was no comedy network. So I went to work for CBS, which was not a good place to try and pitch anything. That was, that was a giant <laughs> monolithic corporation. I was so far from television at that point. I was working in finance. No, oh, wow. But again, <laughs> anything anything you do, right? Any any job you have helps you with your next job. But pretty quickly, I realized CBS was not the place for me. It was uh, very corporate. And uh, I got a call from a friend and he said, hey, you know what? They're looking for someone here to do subscriber forecasting for HBO. And HBO was pretty young then. It'd been on the satellite for seven or eight years. It was very young, mm -hmm. but very successful. I mean, HBO in those days was like Netflix now. It was like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to change television. You know, we are the future. We are what it's all about. And they were. They were getting a lot of subscribers. And they were known on television for putting on movies that were uncut and uncensored. Now, nobody had done that on television before. So naturally, they were getting a lot of subscribers. But anyway, they needed somebody to, to be the subscriber forecaster. And my friend who went to HBO said, you know, you're the only guy I know who knows how to do econometric forecasting. Isn't that what you were doing before you went back to school? And I said, yeah, that's what I was doing. So I applied for the job and I got the job. Okay, so there's another lesson. If you're trying to get into a certain business and start a business, get as close to the product as you can, even though you may not be that close. Remember, I started at CBS, where I was not anywhere near programming, marketing, all those things. But then I got to HBO, which was a much smaller place, even though I wasn't doing programming or marketing or any of those things. I was at a place where I had, I had more opportunity to get in touch with people who were working in areas that I thought were interesting. And that was my plan. So the other part of the plan, of course, was do a good job on the forecasting. If I did that, then I figured, eh, you know, I'll make a reputation for myself in the company. Maybe I'll get a better job. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. I got a job in um, they were in, in an area called New Business Development. They were testing a new channel called Festival, which was going to be like HBO, but no sex, violence, or bad language. Mm. Family which friendly. Which made me laugh when I, <laughs> I I laughed when I heard that. I said, wait a second, you're going to sell an entertainment product by saying it has no sex, violence, or bad language. I said, man, that, that's a big lift right there. And my new boss said, shh. Don't say anything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want anybody to say anything bad. If, if you don't um, mind me asking, I had a question when you were working in the operations department. Um, in your book, there was a moment when the HBO finance department interrogated you with questions about where are we going to find the... All right. That's actually further into the comedy channel. So yeah, I, yeah. Not, uh, not much further, but yeah. But go ahead. So the HBO finance department, they were asking you these questions. What were the startup costs going to be? 
for the channel, ad revenue, staff. And after working on financials with them, you mentioned, I was serious about getting all the financial information right, but I knew from past experience that you basically make the numbers up. Please tell our audience members why financial forecasting can seem like bullshit and why most of the time people are wrong about the numbers. <laughs> it's it's a little cynical, and it was a little cynical of me to say that in the book, <laughs> I, I have to say. Um, and I apologize to all the people who make a living uh, doing financial forecasting. But forecasting finance financials is like forecasting anything else. You don't really know what's going to happen. What you're really doing is making your best estimate of what's going to happen almost immediately. And that's startup costs, mm-hmm. right? You can pretty much figure out we're going to need 20 guys. We're going to need this much programming. We're gonna, that's year one. What you can't figure out very accurately is revenue because- In the example that we're talking about here, television, revenue came from two places. One was advertisers. Everybody knows that advertising supports television. And the other was subscription fees. And of course, with Netflix, everybody sees that subscription fees are a big source of revenue. So those are the two big sources of revenue you have when you're putting a cable television channel together. And I had no idea how quickly that would materialize, how much it would actually grow over the years. So you put your best estimate of cost together and you have a better idea of that. But when you come to revenue, you just go, Loop, you know, and you just say, all right, by year seven, we are going to be making a fortune because it's going to be successful, assuming you get to year seven. And you're going to have a lot of subscribers. You're going to have a lot of advertisers. So you'll be very, very successful. And most people, you know, when you're when I gave that presentation to the company about here's what I think a comedy channel can look like. Most people nodded their head. They said, okay, yeah, wow, you can make a lot of money at this. Almost immediately after we started the channel, we saw that it was going to pretty much cost more than we thought and make less money than we thought, especially in the early years. And that was something we had to deal with. And I think that's that's something that most entrepreneurs, or in my case, I was an intrapreneur because I was working inside a company, <laughs> have to deal with is the fact that the fact that your best estimates are going to be wrong. That's just the way it works. And that leads you to what you have to do next, which is react. And there's lots of different ways you can react. You can start crying and go home. And that that is that was actually a possibility for me at one point. But you, you can also say, all right, how are we going to make things better? How are we going to fix things? How are we going to turn this into a money-making proposition? Now, when you're doing that, you got a lot of people sort of sitting on your head saying, hey, hurry, you know, we're investing money in this thing. We're losing money. It's resources. Along the way, we got competition, which is something that I guess talking to entrepreneurs before and since, a lot of people say, yeah, we'll have competition, but it won't be for a while, or we're going to be so far out ahead that competition is going to bother us. We got competition almost immediately. We announced that we were going to do a comedy channel at a breakfast in Los Angeles, a press breakfast. And the next day, MTV Networks said, oh yeah, we're going to launch a comedy network too. Now think about this. Before I pitched the comedy network, which by the way, everybody at HBO thought was a pretty bad idea when I first pitched it. (laughs) Before I pitched it, there were no comedy networks in the world. Four or five months later, there's going to be two comedy networks in the world. And that was just, that, that blew my mind. I mean, I just said, okay, of all the problems I'm going to have, now I have to, I'm going to have to deal with competition too. MTV hot. And MTV networks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just saying MTV's hot. 
MTV was hot then, and MTV was not only hot, but MTV had a lot of know-how about how to put cable television channels together. Yeah. Sorry, I think you misheard me. I meant I meant to say ha ha, like H A A. Ha ha. MTV, yeah. yeah. MTV <laughs> called their channel Ha, mm-hmm. the Comedy Network, which I thought actually was the worst worst <laughs> yeah. name for the channel. But I I once said in an article, I hope they keep it. <laughs> but as luck hap- as luck turned out, you know, we went head to head for about six months, trying to beat each other up, trying to become the better channel, and uh, I thought we were winning. You know, it was real trench warfare. You know, we'd put a billboard up in front of their corporate headquarters saying, you know, Comedy Central is the best, or Comedy Channel is the best channel ever. You know, and they'd put a billboard in front of our ne- uh, headquarters saying, "Ha!" You know, big advertising for "Ha!" I mean, that's the level of competition that was going on. Some pettiness right there. Some uh, 1980s uh, pettiness. It was, petty and, <laughs> it was petty. It was petty and it was personal. It was personal. I mean, that's one thing that you don't, you don't realize until you get into it that, especially for me, I, I felt the weight of this channel on my shoulders almost from the beginning because I had pitched it. I talked HBO management into doing it. And then I pulled together a team. And, you know, at one point we had hundreds of people working on this thing that I felt responsible for, even though I wasn't a president, but I was the guy who started it. And everybody knew that. And it was personal. I had to keep it alive. Yeah. Art, something I wanted to touch on is the idea of limited resources. And you already mentioned this, but competition. And I think some entrepreneurs psych themselves out or even create unnecessary anxiety from focusing on what they don't have or what someone else is doing. And I can't help but think of the story you were mentioning about, and this is in the book as well, but when MTV was releasing the All Comedy Network named Ha, and then also when they outbid y'all for rights to to air Saturday Night Live. So how did you deal with that then? And do you think you would have dealt with, handled it any differently today? Well, the second question is, is uh, it's an interesting question, but almost impossible to answer. I mean, I'm, I'm in such a different place. But, but let, me, let me talk about that moment. Saturday Night Live at that point was probably the biggest brand name in comedy in America. And arguably it still is, you know, among, along with Comedy Central. Those are the two. But in those days, they weren't rerunning. There were no reruns of Saturday Night Live. Uh, NBC was keeping those. Lauren Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live, owned the rights. And we had the idea of getting Saturday Night Live and putting it on Comedy Channel. So we went to Lauren and NBC and started the negotiations. Almost instantly, MTV Networks was on top of us, you know, and got into the negotiation. Now, you know, all of these things in retrospect, you, you know, you can say, of course, well, you should have seen that coming. We tried to keep it so quiet that we were having that negotiation, but of course we couldn't keep it quiet. Why not? Because Lauren Michaels and NBC realized, well, listen, we can make more money if we have bidders as opposed to just selling it to one guy. MTV outbid us by a lot. I mean, MTV was really well-resourced and MTV was not going to lose. That was their perspective. And even though HBO's perspective is we're not going to lose, we had limited resources. And somebody, not me, but somebody said, we can't bid that much. We can't go that far. And so we had to face the prospect of our competition having probably the best comedy brand television on their network. 
and going up against us with it. And that was, that was hard. What did we do? We said, okay, now what are we going to do? I mean, we realized that we were just going to have to look elsewhere for good programming. We we're going to have to create more of our own good programming. We added a little bit more stand-up comedy, which was working quite well at the time. We found Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was, and still is, a great show. And uh, it's a great story about how that, that showed up. But, you know, it's not like we weren't, we were without resources and, and shows and capabilities to go up against our competition. We just, listen, they won, we lost, we had to find other ways to fight. And that's what we did. And then tell our audiences about what is it that, what artillery that you all started coming up with to be the center of comedy and what worked and didn't work for the channel? Well, one thing I have to mention before we get too much further is that the competition between the two of us only lasted six months. As I said, I thought we were winning, and I'm sure the high guys thought they were winning. They launched in April. By December, I got a phone call from the chairman of HBO saying, we're merging the channels. Both of us are running through a lot of money, a lot of resources. The world doesn't need two comedy channels. The cable industry is begging us to just be one <laughs> because they want to pick one. They don't want to have to pick one out of two. So we merged and I was, that was a, that was a very disappointing moment for me because mm -hmm. as I said, I thought we were winning. Uh, and second, at that actual moment, I didn't know whether I was going to have a job or anybody was going to have a job. You know, when mergers happen, people get fired. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, I did have a job. They put me and the head of programming from the other network from HA together and said, okay, you guys, it's your job. Figure out what you've got in programming, figure out what to call the new channel and launch the channel in the next few months. And that's what we did. And we renamed it Comedy Central. And then the game changed. I mean, then, then it felt, it really did feel different. And I will say this, competition is very important. And you always have competition, whether it's the direct kind of competition that we had from Ha, which said, hey, we're a comedy network, you're a comedy network, and we're going to eat your lunch. Or it's indirect competition. You got to remember, when I pitched comedy channel to HBO. The first objection was, there's so much comedy on television already. We don't need a whole channel full of comedy. That was it. And that was right. I mean, you had Saturday Night Live. You had Johnny Carson every night doing comedy. You had sitcoms. You had variety shows. There was all kinds of comedy all over the dial. So that's the secondary kind of competition you're running up against. Mm -hmm. So when we became Comedy Central, we had to think about how we were going to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the comedy that was around, how we were going to make ourselves what I used to call a place for comedy, where people wanted to go and they could go and know that they were going to get a certain kind of comedy. And what we found out pretty quickly is, unlike Ha, which had defined themselves as comedy for people from 5 to 95, that's a pretty broad demographic. Comedy mm. Channel had really tried to narrow themselves down. We were looking for young, you know, 15 to 25-year-olds, you know, younger people. And we quickly became the comedy network of edgy young comedy when we became Comedy Central. That's what we decided to do. And that worked, you know. We started getting younger men especially. And young men, by the way, in the advertising business at that time especially – you could not get young men to watch television unless it was sports. That was uh -huh. it. That was what they were watching. So the idea that we were bringing young men in in significant um, in numbers 
was very impressive. And we started charging a lot for our advertising. And that, that was a very good thing, as you can imagine, because that gave us more money to work with to get more and better programming. And that's what we did. And I love in the book how you talk about how there was a lot of executives that would come and they'd be like, when they're referencing the comedy channel or just anything related to the channel was, I don't, I don't understand this humor. I don't get it. It's not that funny, but my kid, he thinks it's hilarious. And I think you all touched on something. <laughs> That's absolutely true. You know, when we, we were selling, when we first started the comedy network and when the comedy ne network wars were going on between the two of us. We were selling to advertisers, but more to the point, we were trying to get cable operators to carry us. There was a you remember cable operators, there's one in every city. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of them are owned by the same guys, Cox, Comcast, whatever. But in those days, you had to go basically town to town and say, will you launch my comedy network? And we were talking to guys who were, you know, in their 40s and 50s and- mm -hmm just really said, we looked at it. We don't think it's funny. We don't see any reason to launch it. And uh, But after a while, they started saying, we don't think it's funny, but my teenage son is watching this thing all the time. And that, that was one of the clues. That was one of the things that we grabbed onto and I grabbed onto saying, okay, we're going to be able to make this successful because we can find an audience. And I think one of the things that entrepreneurs have to do as they're building their business is look for indicators of future success. Because success, you know, when you're successful, when you're making a lot of money or when you sell or when, you know, or, or you get mm -hmm. bought by another company or, or you're, you know, you're celebrated as the best brand. But before that happens, there are little indications, little flashes of success or future success. And I used to hold those so dear. I used to, whenever whenever they came up, I would like go all around the company and say, hey, guess what? This is what I just found out. This is what's happening. And this is why we're going to be successful. When MST3000 came in to the Comedy Channel, do you know how it came to us? They mailed it to us. And that was before we even launched. We got a cassette tape, video cassette in the mail with a letter that said, hey, we hear you guys are launching a comedy channel. Is this something that you might be interested in? And of course, we put it in. It was brilliant. And it was also television that would have ended up nowhere else, right? Hmm. It was not going to end up on the networks. It was not going to end up on HBO. It was rough and ready. It was handmade television, right? And it was funny as hell. And when I saw that, I said, yeah, we are going to be the center of the comedy universe because Great comedy is going to find us. It's going to come to us after a while. We're not even going to have to go look, look for it. And that was one of the things that I talked about even early on, before we were successful, saying, look, we are the place for comedy. Comedians come and hang out with us. They did. We'd get comedians coming and just hanging out at the studio just because that was a great place to hang out. Either, there, either they were hanging out there or they were hanging out at the clubs, but the clubs didn't open until, you know, eight at night. So all of these things were contributing to the idea that, yes, we were starting to really become what we wanted to be, which was the center of the comedy universe. Yeah, our, I think this is a great tip to all our listeners is to know how to listen and look at the data and do consumer testing and just know that, yes, it's important to be present in what's going on, but to also look ahead and see what else you can, can do and 
it's I love I love the idea of build it and they will come. And at the time you were creating this new space that wasn't really there before. So uh, I had a quick question related to leadership that I wanted to ask you. And I know that you're the creator of a successful TV channel, gardening massive audiences and in 30 million households across the globe. So what would you say are two character traits that are responsible for your success? And if you want to maybe tell a story or give an example of how that trait contributed to your success. Well, the first thing is you have to have passion. You have to be passionate about what you're trying to build. You know, one of the things I always take issue with is they call it the elevator pitch. And I always think of that as the wrong way to describe it because elevators are quiet and they got this stupid, you know, soft music playing and someone saying, you know, I got an idea for a channel and it would be all comedy all the time. That's not the way to pitch it. When you pitch something, you have to have the passion flying out of you like electricity. You have to get people to understand that you think this is the greatest idea in the world and you've got 500 reasons and you can't wait to tell them all of the reasons that this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. And let me tell you how that paid off. When I first pitched the chairman of HBO, I had pitched other people at HBO and they said no, but finally I got in to see the chairman. I think what got me through, it was, it was kind of like, you're going to go see the chairman right now. I had no presentation materials. I hadn't planned for it. What got me through was passion. I just, I was so excited about it as I was telling him about it that he got excited about it. And I think that is something that's very important to remember, whether you're talking to potential investors or your friends and your, your girlfriend, whenever you're talking about it, you got to get excited about it. Because if you're like, eh, yeah, it should be good, that's not going to work. You got to have passion. The second trait, and I don't know if this is a trait, but I talk a lot about it, is vision. And I think great leaders have great vision. When I first started talking about the channel, I realized that saying, hey, you know, we ought to start a comedy channel because there isn't one. That's not vision. When I started to say, we ought to start a comedy channel because if we do and it's successful, in 10 years, we are going to own comedy in America. Now, think of the difference between those two statements. And when I told the chairman of, of HBO that we were going to own comedy, he went, he just thought that was the greatest idea in the world because he liked comedy to begin with. He knew it was a great, you know, moneymaker and entertainment. The idea that we could own comedy, that we could be the center of the comedy universe, that great comedy would find us. Vision is what's going to be how, how your product or business is going to change the world. And that's what, that's what leadership brings to any kind of endeavor. Thank you, Art, for sharing that. And I, I want to go into even like when you were talking about your pitch, I really admired how after you've got the no from, um, uh, I think it was Bridget, or you at the time your boss, right, you got the, the no. Right. I pitched her. She was the head of HBO programming. So I thought mm -hmm. she was the right person to talk to. And then what I thought I found admiring was you still kind of, you had that disagreement. You had that passion that even when people came by and said, now that sounds like a ridiculous idea. I don't think that's going to work. You still kind of persevered and went through. And then you had one of your really good friends that helped get you to Michael. And then I thought it was just fascinating how 
when you were going through that moment of the pitch, you were like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but this feels just great. So I'm just going to pour it all out there for him. Uh, I just thought that was a great moment in the book just because a lot of times people have those thoughts. And that that's kind of what I want to bring up, those thoughts of like sometimes we sort of self-doubt, right? We kind of have this, uh, sometimes we have this negative self-thinking or just from hearing the noise, right? And the rejection. How did you tune that out when you were working on this, uh, on pitching the channel? I, you know, it's a good question. And I had convinced myself, partly because I love comedy so much and partly because I had done my homework. I really did, you know, think about the financials and how to do it and how to bring it into the world and, and what it would mean and where we were in, hist- in the history of cable. There were only a handful of cable channels in those days. Um, I had really convinced myself that it was the right idea. And so the way I told myself, talked to myself about it, I said, look, either we're going to do it or somebody else is going to do it. I guarantee it. And that was... Mm. That was the way I ended up getting people to listen a little bit more. Because when you are trying to pitch an idea, when you're pitching an idea, what's the easiest thing for the person you're pitching to say? It'll never work. That's the easiest thing to say. Because mm-hmm. when they say, and in the case of Bridget, who is the head of programming at HBO, if she had said, you know what, Art, that's a great idea. Let's do it. What's the next thing that happens? Now she owns the idea, right? Now she's mm-hmm. got to go to Michael, the chairman of the of the thing, and say, hey, I think this is a great idea. Now she's got to start devoting resources and people and thinking about what it is. And you know what? Bridget had a job. You know, <laughs> She was working. <laughs> she was the head of programming. She had plenty to do. Yeah. She didn't need more aggravation. So it's not like my pitch felt on deaf ears. And she heard me. But she said, look, there are lots of reasons we're not going to do that. Too expensive. We do comedy anyway here at HBO. Too much comedy on the dial. You know, she just went through it. That's the easiest response to give. And that's the response you're often going to get. So when Mm. I said I walked out of there thinking she's wrong, it was really about not that I was going to be the one to do it or had the best insight, but I knew somebody was going to do it. And I just really wanted them to think about whether it should be them or not, whether Mm. it should be HBO. And really, I wanted a job at a comedy network. Remember, that's how it all started. I thought I should be working at a comedy channel. And if, you know, the only way it was going to happen is if I started it, okay, I'll start it. So that's that's really it. But it's not only that first moment. The first year of, of comedy channel, it was considered a failure by a lot of people, including the press, especially the press. The press was happy to knock HBO down. The press was happy to say, hey, you know, the most successful channel in the history of television, they're screwing this up royally. And let me tell you why. That was what the press was doing. It's not funny. They're not putting enough money into it. You know, I mean, all kinds of stuff we got from the press. And every day I went home thinking, oh man, how are we going to keep this going? And I go in in the morning thinking maybe this is the day they were going to shut us down. But I also went in saying, okay, what's working and what's not working? And let's do more of what's working and let's do less of what's not working. And that's how I approached every day. Yeah, our a theme that we've been hearing in a lot of our interviews is as an entrepreneur or anyone with an idea, you have to be willing to take the risks. You have to be willing to hear feedback and respond to that or, as you said, react to it. And it's okay to receive criticism. I think a lot of the millennials and Gen Zers just want to come off so polished to the point where 
no one can really pick at them or, or critique them. But from your story, it, we know that it's okay to, to receive criticism, to take the risks at first and not do as well as you thought you would. That's sort of part of the process and part of the journey. And if you're not willing to do that, then maybe you don't really want to bring your idea to life. <laughs> yeah, you got to believe in it. You're, you're absolutely right. It's about, I mean, criticism is important. It's as important as research. It's kind of like cheap research. Um, research is actually getting that. No, it's true. It's true research yeah. is actually getting out, out there and talking to actual people in enough volume that you get a real feel for what's going on. Criticism, as I said, is cheap research. Somebody comes along and says, you know what? I was watching the channel. I don't think you have enough of this, and I think you should have more of this. And somebody once said that to me. And I, I took it as criticism, but I didn't, re I didn't take any of the criticism as, oh, man, you know, that's probably right, but what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, that's, that's mean that the guy said. It's not mean. People, people criticize. Listen, my mother called me up and said, hey, my friends are watching your channel. They tell me it's not funny. That's criticism, you know. But you, but you hear this stuff and you have to do something with it. But there's one thing you didn't mention when you said you have to be willing to listen to criticism and you have to be willing to take the chances. You have to be willing to fail. And that is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. The willingness to put yourself out there in a way that is as likely to end in failure as in success. So if you can't face the possibility, and that's not saying you should go out there and say, okay, I might fail, so I'll just keep doing this. It's really about understanding that you're putting a lot on the line. You're putting your career, some of your career on the line. You're putting some of your reputation on the line. You're putting a lot of things on the line. And that thing could fail for reasons that have nothing to do with you. You don't get the funding that you thought you needed. The competition comes in and beats you over the head. There's all kinds of reasons you can fail that have nothing to do with you, your vision, your passion, even your expression of your product or your, or your business. Right. So you have to understand that that's part of the landscape and you have to be willing to fail. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you said that, Art. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome because a lot of times people try to uh, over-sexualize success. Like, oh my gosh, this guy, he created this and no one ever sees what actually happens behind the scenes leading up to that success. And I think that's where we can get a lot of gems from the, that journey, as, as cliche as that sounds, from the journey working up towards that, that success. And nowadays, so like younger generations would argue that you need a large... You don't need a large corporation to back, uh, tell someone to back you if they technically want to create their own comedy or do something like uh, similar to Comedy Channel Online. What advice would you give to people that are creating their own comedy reels or on like we're thinking about like TikTok, right? Instagram, YouTube, and ways that maybe they can capitalize on that following that they have? Well, I listen, I think they could probably give me advice on that at this point. The, the, the landscape, <laughs> the landscape is, is completely different. I mean, the whole idea that you could get your act or your persona or yourself or your performance out to the entire world conceptually instantly is, is just mind-blowing in so many ways. You know, around 2004, 2005, I was still in the television business. And I commented to somebody, you know, these days with the technology, somebody could put a TV channel out of their garage. That's just when digital started to really take over. And I realized at that moment that 
it didn't take millions of dollars to start a channel the way it did when we were doing Comedy Channel. You had to have a lot of infrastructure to start a channel in those days. Now, you need an iPhone. I mean, that's, that's pretty much your infrastructure, that and, you know, and, and your connection. Of course, that comes with the downside, which is everybody else is doing it. So you have to find ways to break through. Now, the whole story of the entertainment business is I'm a great performer. I'm a great writer. I'm a great whatever I am. But there's a million other guys who are there, too. That was Hollywood in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? There were no shortage of great talent. There's still no shortage of great talent. I go see a Broadway play sometimes, not lately, but, you know, and I see a Broadway play, and then and then I'll see, oh, they're, they've got a cat, they've got a substitution in the cast. Oh, damn it, you know? <laughs> and then the person is fantastic, and you realize, my God, there's like 5,000 layers deep of great Broadway performers out there most of them aren't, aren't working, you know, and that's what you're up against in the entertainment business. There are millions and millions of people. So what you have either online as you're doing this or in any portion of the entertainment industry is you have to deal with the fact that the people who win are the people who persist and the people who work very, very hard. Those two things. It's just, you know, that's it. Every once in a while, there's such a brilliant Italian that it's just going to explode. But even those people... They persist. They're working yeah. very hard. That's it. That's the show. Yeah. So, Art, we don't need a downtown studio. We can have one downstairs. And That's right. That's right. You can do it right out of your it's, house. You get together with at. your friends. Get together with your friends. You know, you start the, uh, you know, the Upright Citizens Brigade and suddenly you're famous, you know. And, and <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a great thing. I mean, I think that's a great thing. Um, but it's also yeah. a messy thing. And... Uh, and we deal with that kind of choice every day when we pick up our phone or turn on the television in a way we didn't have to 30 years ago. Yeah. Something I wanted to return to was talking about failings or as one of our entrepreneur guests called it learnings because you are learning while you're failing. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, and this is a spoiler alert. So if you haven't read the book, just want folks to know ahead of time, but we wanted to hear more about the moment when you were fired from Comedy Central, and we want to know how this impacted your life because we're, we're thinking about failure and it happening. And I know this was a fear that you brought up in the book, but how was, did that moment impact your life? Well, yes. The book is a memoir, so it's not a history of Comedy Central. It didn't pretend to be that. It was really my experience starring Comedy Channel and Comedy Central. And one of the things I realized as I started writing it was because I was writing a memoir, if it was going to be any good, I really had to turn myself inside out for the reader. I really had to say what I was thinking and feeling at all times. I remember at one point my wife said she was reading some part of it that I'd read. She says, you know, you make yourself sound like you were scared or, you know, you weren't really in charge of the situation. And I said, well, I could write the book saying I was in charge of the situation constantly and I felt great about it all the time. It just wasn't true. And this is a memoir and I want to be frank with people about what this was like for me personally. The last thing that happened was that they fired the president of Comedy Central, who was my boss. And when your boss gets fired, you're in a lot of trouble, generally in corporations. Uh, and they brought in somebody new. And the somebody new was like, oh, yeah, great. You know, great to have you here at Months later, he decided, well, actually weeks later, he decided to fire everybody who wasn't on the team he brought in. And that happens a lot when a new manager comes in. 
he wanted his creative team in. And when he fired me, he said, you know, you got your fingerprints all over this place. I can't have you here, which was honest and real and was to a certain extent, slightly flattering saying, look, you built the place, you know, but he was also saying, I need to continue this without having you here. I was devastated. I was devastated. I knew it was going to happen. I mean, when they brought the new guy in, as I said, your boss gets fired, new guy comes in, everybody around me was getting fired. It was just a matter of time, right? And I took it really hard. The best advice I got after I was fired was, you know what, go talk to some people about what you're going to do next. Don't just jump out there and get your next job or start your next business. So I did. And I ended up talking to a guy who was head of a record company and he had been in television and now he's head of this record company and very successful. And I didn't know him. He didn't know me. But he said, you know something, Art, in the entertainment business, if you don't get fired once in a while, it means you weren't taking chances. You weren't really kind of trying to get out there and do something. So don't take it personally. Just figure out what you want to do next and do that. And that was extremely helpful because let me tell you, it's hard not to take it personally when you're fired. You you end up feeling really bad about yourself. And I will tell you something else. Before that, before I was fired, I thought people got fired because they did a bad job, right? Or they didn't show up for work or they, you know, said bad things about the boss's daughter. I don't know. I thought that, you know, you had to work hard (laughs) to get fired um, and do something really horrible. I didn't do anything horrible. You know, I helped build the place. I was working hard. I was working smart, I thought. And uh, I learned that people get fired for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with the, with the way they were performing or what they were doing or how they were doing it. Listen, I didn't deal with it in the book, but we know that entrepreneurs get displaced from their, you know, from their creations all the time. Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. was thrown out of Apple and came back, but he was thrown out. And that, that's not an unusual story to be thrown out of your company. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I've realized that from a lot of talking to a lot of entrepreneurs is that there's times when it's like, are you that same person that's going to take, let's say your business is whatever business it may be, is here running at $10 million. Are you going to be that same person that's running it when it's generated revenue of 400 million? Who knows? You're the one who started it. If you don't know if you're going to be that right person, know that now so that in the future you can be ready for that, that maybe finding a co-CEO or finding somebody else to work with, or in your case, in that decision, it just ended up falling into your lap. Yeah. You don't always get to make the decision, but I think you're making a good point. One thing you find out very quickly when you're working is that you're not good at everything. I mean, you may think you're good at everything. And there are certainly (laughs) bosses who are not only hands-on, but micromanagers. It's it's Mm. a tough way to go because as I moved up through the ranks and I ended up, you know, I was president of Core TV. I used to describe my job as not coming up with good ideas. I describe my job as listening to other people's ideas and and picking the, the ideas that were the good ideas, picking and choosing among the ideas because everybody's talking about things we ought to be doing constantly. And my job was to say, okay, let's do that. That sounds like a good idea. It's hard to come up with good ideas. You know, Einstein said he came up with one or two in his life. I always love that quote. You know, one or two good <laughs> ideas in his life. Smartest guy on earth ever. And But I think that's right. I think people come up with a couple of good ideas. Um, and the rest of it is listening for good ideas. Yeah, it reminds me of something you said earlier. You have to know everything about the business, but you're not going to be good at everything. <laughs> so it's sort of the 
you have to keep that in mind. <laughs> right. There are, there are experts in all kinds of things that you're not experts in. You got to hire people who know what they're doing, you know, and you got to defer to people who know what they're doing. And sometimes that's hard. Yeah. All right. Well, we're starting, we're going to end off with this final segment. It's a new segment that we're starting. It's called Mind Your Business, where we ask questions from our listeners. For those tuning in, you can ask any question you like. Nothing is left behind and off limits. Our guest has the option to answer on the spot, or you can tell us, but with conviction, all right, tell us, mind your business. So the first question comes from somebody on Facebook, 1526POW, ask, would you consider South Park to be one of the most important pieces of animation TV for Comedy Central? I think that's an easy yes. <laughs> I think that's an easy yes. Um, it wasn't the first uh, we did um, Dr. Katz, which was a an extremely simplistically animated but extremely funny cartoon. Dr. Katz, professional therapist. And it was about a psychiatrist in, and his cl clients were all comedians. Uh, and that was the first <laughs> one we did. And, but yes, I, I, think, I think South Park arguably was one of the most important moments in comedy history and for Comedy Central. Awesome. Next question. So if you were trapped 24 hours in a room, who would you choose and why wouldn't you choose the person that you didn't choose? Bill Maher or Eddie G? <laughs> Somebody who read my book, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, I'll say I would, I would choose Eddie Gordetsky because he, uh, he's a very funny guy and he and I didn't get along very well, but I certainly liked him a lot. Bill Moore was harder to like. That's all. <laughs> he was. Uh, we didn't get along. We didn't get along, and I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. So that was the end of it. But Eddie, Eddie's a. He's still writing. He's a comedy writer. Wait a second. Did Eddie ask that? That wasn't from Eddie Gordetsky, was it? No, that or was not. No. no, neither. I have no connections. <laughs> I don't have him on speed dial. I didn't ask. No. <laughs> but yes, it was on the book. I, I loved it. The I love the moments when you're talking with them. Yeah. And I'm glad you described your relationship with Eddie in the book. I really think it's important to get that message across to people that like, hey, it's okay. You're not going to always see eye to eye or connect best with someone that you have to work with and um, be productive with. That's true. That's true. Okay. And then last question, and this one comes from me. So when you were a writer of the tongue, I think you all had a song that you wrote um, can you sing that song for us? I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I would love to hear. I would love to just hear it. It's the in-school suspension blues. And yes, I sang it with some other people at graduation. And here's the really good news. The bad news is I'm not going to sing it now. <laughs> Mind your business. The really good news is I just finished recording my audio book. Uh -huh. And I recorded it myself for oh. Constant Comedy, how I started Comedy Central and lost my sense of humor. And it came out great, I think, uh, and some other people think. It's not out yet. It'll be out in a few weeks. That's exciting. Um, so I hope you can remind your listeners when it comes out. But um, I do sing it uh, on that on, oh, on yes. that one. So if you want to hear, awesome. hear it. Acapella, by the way, just, you know, no instrumentation. Just, no instruments, all acapella. That's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan asked the question because he's a singer. That's why. <laughs> oh, I, I am not a singer. Uh, although it would be fun to sing. I am a musician. I, I play piano. I play drums. But I am not a singer. Yeah. Sadly. 
So everybody, that was Mind Your Business. Remember to submit your questions on all our socials, DM us, or who knows, your, your question may be featured uh, for our next show. So Art, thank you so much for being on our show. Tell our listeners how they can follow you if they're looking to create their own comedy channel. And this is a moment that you could put in your plug on where people can find your book. Yeah, that's important. I think people should read the book because it was an interesting journey. And again, it was told very personally. And I think there's a lot in there that entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs can get get out of it. It's on Amazon. That's the easiest way to do it. Just put, you know, type in Art Bell on Amazon and the book will show up. Um, you can also go to my my website, artbellwriter.com, where you can get the book. You'll see when the audio book comes out. You'll see some of my other writings because I do write other stuff. And just keep in touch with what I'm up to. We also have a podcast and that you can find the podcast on, on my website or wherever podcasts are found. The podcast is also called Constant Comedy. Uh, it's Constant Comedy with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Vinny is somebody who's in the book. He was there at the beginning and we decided to do a podcast and they're very funny. They're very fun to listen to. That's all the plugs I have right now. <laughs> <laughs> more, more comedy. <laughs> So thank you, Art, once again. And for those tuning in, make sure to follow and subscribe to us on all streaming platforms, including our socials at Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And leave us some honest review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Thank you, Art.